0: The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So today marks the 36th message that I have preached out of the Gospel of John. And at this point, we're almost a quarter of the way through this book. So based on that pace, another 122 messages, and we'll finish this thing right up. Now, um, along the way, I have shared that the goal of John is to introduce Jesus to a skeptical and an unbelieving world. And he doesn't want them to just know about Jesus, but rather he wants people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, they may have life in his name, chapter 20, verse 31. So this is an entire book about belief. And in order to convey that message, John consistently uses the verbiage of a courtroom. He talks about witnesses and testimony, evidence, truth, claims, and verification. So everything is carefully written, everything is strategically outlined, and everything is logically presented to people who are intellectually honest, but still do not yet believe. Now, you're going to understand by the end of the message why I say intellectually honest. That's also what next week is going to be about as well. So in the previous 35 messages, there have been four entire messages that I preach completely on an aspect of belief. Today is going to be number five. In each of the other four messages, it approached belief from a somewhat different angle. For example, in chapter one, John helped people to establish reliable criteria for their belief. And in order to do that, he's helping people ask questions like, what is true? What is reliable? What is trustworthy? What is real? And in that section, we actually went through two messages where we saw that our belief is strengthened by the reliability of the evidence, the credibility of witnesses, and God's continual faithfulness over the course of our lives. In chapter 3, John shared the benefits of belief And he also talked about the consequences of unbelief. And he stressed the dangers of people to put off or to delay thinking about and pondering the claims of Christ. And he tells us why. That is, all sinners are currently abiding under the wrath of God. We got into chapter 4, and we learned about saving faith in Christ. There's a lot of people who believe in the historical figure known as Jesus, that he was a great leader, a great teacher, a miracle worker. All of those things are correct. But that's not the same as believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So in that particular message, we saw that there are three essential aspects of saving faith. Content, conviction, and trust resulting in reliance. In our final section in chapter 5, we're going to find that Jesus discusses in this section why people should believe. Reasons for believing. And then he finishes up this section by sharing reasons for rejecting. And the reasons for rejecting him are not the normal ones that we might think about. So the final section of John 5 is going to end strong. Let me tell you who this message is going to be specifically geared towards. For those of you who love to be able to share the gospel with friends and family and to live on mission with God, Jesus is about to load your evangelistic wagon here. For those of you who love apologetics, you want to know how to defend the faith, Jesus is going to present a logical, rational, reasonable reason for people to believe. And for those of you who maybe you're still on the fence, that is, you've not yet believed in Christ, but you are interested in Christ Jesus is going to answer many of the personal questions that people have. So there's a lot to get through this morning. I'm excited. I invite you to join me. John's Gospel, chapter number 5. And I'm going to be speaking this morning on reasons for believing. Reasons for believing. So this morning, instead of us reading the entire text, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the different sections as we work our way through. So let's, let's pray this time. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we get into this final section in chapter 5, that you would give us incredible clarity as we go through. May we pull from the pages what you have placed in them. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take just a moment to regain perspective of the entire chapter. The chapter began with Jesus walking into a pagan sanitarium and healing a man who had been ill for 38 years. Had that just been the basic scene, nothing else around that, It wouldn't have raised any eyebrows. Jesus was known as a miracle worker. However, he did this on the Sabbath. So immediately, the religious crowd got upset and said that he was breaking God's law. They were so upset that verse number 16 says, For this reason, the Jews, speaking of the religious leaders of Judaism, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus had not broken God's law, but he had disregarded man-made laws. The next thing that Jesus says took the religious crowd over the, over the top. Now, it's kind of interesting. We think about Jesus being this meek, mild, calm, quiet, loving, gracious man, and he was all of those things, but he was also willing to step into a fight when he needed to step into a fight. So in this, his next statement made him irate. Here's what he said in verse number 17. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, if you're thinking, that doesn't sound like fighting words to me at all. It's because of how they understood his meaning to be. Here's their response in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. It goes from persecuting him to desiring to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The religious leaders accurately understood exactly what Jesus was saying he was claiming to have a special relationship with God the Father, and he was claiming equality with God. So from verse 17 all the way through the end of the chapter, Jesus reveals more of his unique relationship with the Father and more of his equality with the Father. He makes it clear that he's doing the work of the Father, so to reject him is to reject the Father. And everything that Jesus is saying is intended to bring people to a crossroads of belief. He is bold on purpose. He is assertive on purpose. He is making claims that people are going to have to step back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you really mean what you just said? He did this on purpose so that not only the original crowd, but everyone who has read this since then will have to answer questions like this is Jesus God? Is Jesus speaking the truth? Is Jesus acting in harmony with the will of the Father? And the reason we need to ask those questions is because what we believe about those things matters. What we believe about those things impacts our soul. What we believe about those things impacts our life today as well as through eternity. So, All of that being said, I want us to now read verse number 30. And let me say this because I'm going in and out of a lot of these sections, I have not put any of these verses on the screen. So you're either gonna have to just listen to me this morning, or you're gonna have to pull out your Bible and read along with me. I promise we'll be able to make it through here. So look at verse number 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, verse 30 summarizes Jesus' claims to be equal with the Father, a claim that he has now been asserting from verses 19 through 29. Contrary to the opponent's accusations, he was not acting on his own initiative when he healed the man who had been sick for 38 years, but rather he was acting in harmony with the will of God the Father. Therefore, to accuse him of wrongdoing essentially is to accuse the Father of wrongdoing. Now, since the immediate context involves Jesus' role as judge, he used judgment as an illustration of his equality in that verse. He says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's read now verse number 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Jesus was not saying that if he speaks for himself, then what he is saying is is untrustworthy, that it is a lie. That's, That's not what he's talking about at all. In fact, he even says in chapter 8, verse 14, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. So, why does it seem like he's contradicting that in this section? Well, the issue is not about the truthfulness of his testimony. The issue was about whether or not his opponents would believe what he had to say. Because under Jewish law, the self-testimony of any person was not to be accepted without two or three witnesses who would verify those same claims. So knowing that aspect of Jewish culture clears up any perceived contradiction between chapter 5 and chapter 8. The statement in in chapter 5, is based on legal grounds. The statement in chapter 8 is based on personal knowledge. Now, since the religious leaders would not accept his self-testimony as being true, he now offers four witnesses to testify on his behalf. Are you noticing the words, once again, that speak of kind of the verbiage of a courtroom? Words like testify, testimony, judge, witness, evidence. All of these words are constantly popping out in John's writing. So here is witness number one that he's going to call to the witness stand. That is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, witness number one. Now, we've already studied John in the past, and John was one of the most prominent uh, and popular people within the New Testament. He's mentioned 89 different times. But this morning, let me give you a quick refresher on who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist, if you'll remember, had a miraculous birth to aging parents. He was filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. John and Jesus were actually relatives. According to Luke one thirty six. it tells us that John's mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary were relatives, the exact type of relative we're not sure about. Also, John the Baptist was the forerunner to Christ. His ministry was to prepare the nation of Israel for Messiah's arrival and to point out Messiah when he had arrived. Also, John was the first true prophet in 400 years, first one now to appear within the New Testament. We also see that John was bold and unapologetic in his, his words. John's message was simple. You go show up any week, here's what John's going to say. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message over and over again. Now, he was so bold with this that he even challenged King Herod because King Herod was sleeping with his brother's wife. Now, that is not the way to win friends and influence people is to call out the king saying, by the way, um, you're sleeping with someone you should be sleeping with. But listen to King Herod's response about him. It says in Mark six twenty that Herod acknowledged that John was a righteous and holy man. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Isn't that an interesting piece right there? Even this wicked king said he is a righteous and a holy man. John was also incredibly popular and well-respected by people. Mark chapter 1 verse 5 tells us all Judea was going out to listen to him. It says all Jerusalem was going out to listen to him. It was saying that the Jews were being baptized for repentance of sins. John is also called the greatest man who ever lived to that point by Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, and John was the one who baptized Jesus. So let's let's just kind of bring all that good stuff together. John the Baptist had a miraculous birth, filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, forerunner to Christ, first true prophet of the New Testament, bold in his message, popular and well respected by people called the greatest man who ever lived by Jesus himself and was the one who baptized the son of God I don't think you could find a better more reliable witness than John the Baptist now since he had been regarded as a prophet his testimony carried incredible weight In fact, the Jewish authorities, the same ones who were now persecuting and wanting to see Jesus killed, that same group had already sent a delegation out to listen to John the Baptist preach and to ask him specific questions about Messiah. But just like their fathers before them who rejected the prophets within the Old Testament, they also rejected John's witness. Now, Jesus gives us an interesting play on words in verse 35 when describing John the Baptist. Look in that verse. It says, John was the lamp that was burning, it was shining. Okay, unlike Jesus, who is the light of the world, chapter 8, verse 12, and the word light is phos, it is the essence of light. John was a lamp. The word is Lutschnas which is a portable oil lamp. So here's what he's saying. Just as a lamp lights the way for people, so John lit the way for Christ. Beautiful play on words here. Now, Jesus ended this tribute to John with a rebuke of the Jewish leaders. He says in verse 35, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, like moths to a lamp. People flocked to hear John as the first prophet in 400 years. They, they showed up in droves to hear him as he was proclaiming the coming of Messiah. Something they had awaited now for hundreds of years. But as they were there, it was his stern call for personal repentance. It was his stinging rebuke of the nation's hypocrisy. It was also his shocking practice of baptizing Jews. A practice that had been set aside for the Gentile proselytes. It was those things that began to distance people from John. So ultimately, they turned away from the light that had been reflected, and they turned to darkness because their deeds were evil. Chapter 3, verse 19. That now brings us to witness number two, Jesus' miraculous works. When you're in a court of law and you're able to say, my first witness is the greatest person who has ever lived. You set the bar pretty high on who your next witness is going to be. And in this situation, the more convincing witness, even than John's testimony, was the signs that Jesus had performed. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus' miracles had prompted someone like Nicodemus, a very prominent religious man, a, a Jewish leader, to confess, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Chapter 3, verse 2. Also, John 7, 31, it tells us kind of how the people as a whole looked at Christ. It said, many from the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? Will he? And finally, even the bitter enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees themselves, they were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Chapter 11, verse 47. So no one was debating whether or not Jesus was doing the miraculous. His disciples saw the signs, the crowds saw the signs, his critics saw the signs. No one was debating whether or not the miraculous was happening. And that's the reason he pointed back to his signs as validation for his claims to be the Son of God. So in John's Gospel, there are seven prominent signs that are mentioned. I'm just going to read through these. These are in your notes. The first, turning water to wine. That's how the signs began. Number two, healing the official son. Number three, healing a paralytic. Number four, feeding the multitude. Number five, walking on water. I'm going to tell you, that's an attention getter of a sign right there. Number six, carrying the blind man. And number seven, raising Lazarus from the dead. Each sign demonstrated Jesus' power over a different aspect of the human experience. Now we come to witness number three, God the Father. So let's read verse 32. Some of you might have thought I skipped verse 32. I didn't. It's just in a different section. So let's go back and read verse 32 right now. It says, now there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, this is one where if you love detail, if you love the fact that the word of God is written so precisely, this is one that you will enjoy. Because that first phrase, there is another, another, another who testifies of me. Jesus could have chosen one of two words for another. The two words that he had, number one was alas. The second word was heteros. They are virtually the same word with a small little nuance of difference. That is, heteros means another of a different sort. Alas means another of the same sort. He used alas in verse 32. So here's what he's basically doing. In keeping with his equality and his union with the Father, he's saying there is another of the same sort as me who testifies that I am true it's beautiful because without denying his unity with the father he is now treating the father's testimony as independent of his own let that one just kind of sink in for a moment you know we're trying our best to keep our heads around this idea of trinity and we do it pretty much in failure all the time we can't get our minds around that But even in the small details all the way through the scriptures, you find Jesus keeping these pieces in perfect tension, using exact words to make sure that he's not kind of muddying the waters, but rather he is keeping the idea together. There is one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all the way down into the details like there is another who testifies of me. So, I want to pause here for just a moment. Let's say you're now presenting your case in a courtroom and your first witness is the greatest person who ever lived up until that point. Your second witness is a chain of miraculous signs that even your critics could not disagree with. And your third witness is God. That's a solid lineup of witnesses. Now, Jesus Tells us in verse 37 And the Father who sent me has testified of me. Okay, the Father's testimony would be infinitely greater than any human testimony. The gospel records two specific encounters in which the father verbally gave testimony of his son. The first is at his baptism. The second is on the Mount of Transfiguration. In those, it says, a voice was heard from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus said, you have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form. This is, again, a stinging rebuke to those who are the religious leaders. Basically, what he's saying here is that, yes, we understand that no one can see the full glory of God and live. But there were times throughout Jewish history when God audibly and he visibly interacted with his people. For example, he spoke with Moses, Exodus 33. He spoke with the Israelites in the Exodus, Deuteronomy 4. He spoke with the prophets, Hebrew chapter 1. He also appeared in a physical manifestation to people like Jacob, Genesis 32, Gideon, Judges 6, Manoah, Judges 13, as well as others. So the Jewish leaders not only had both the Old Testament Scripture to speak God's Word, but now they have truth- personified, standing right in front of them, and they still did not believe. Which brings us to witness number four, Old Testament scripture. Let's read verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Now, Jesus was not commanding them to search the Scriptures, but rather he was noting that they were already frantically searching the Scriptures with the hopes of being able to find eternal life. This is a picture that is dripping with irony because, with all of their study of Scripture, they failed to grasp whom the Scriptures testified about. The religious leaders, they prided themselves in studying every line, every word, even every letter of Scripture in a search for truth, and yet they missed the big picture of whom the Scriptures spoke about and how they testified about Christ. Now, let's put all of those pieces together really quickly as we close. Jesus called the greatest man who ever lived up to the stand as his first witness. This was a guy who was popular among his critics, popular among government officials, popular among the people, well-respected man. Jesus then pointed to his miraculous signs that they had already agreed were miraculous. And he says, these two testify about me. So things like turning water to wine and walking on water and raising the dead, all of those testified to the fact that he is the son of God. Then Jesus reminded them of God the Father's audible testimony that he was his beloved son, founded as baptism and also the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he finishes this argument by focusing on the scriptures that they had prided themselves in studying for hundreds of years. These are the same scriptures that were written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Here's why that's important. Because you can manipulate evidence that you can get your hands on. You cannot manipulate evidence that happened hundreds of years before you were born. That had already been studied for hundreds of years. Had already been accepted and respected hundreds of years prior. So basically what he's doing is this. He's bringing them to the point in which if they reject his claims. They're going to also have to reject what they love the most. I'm going to tell you, you would not want to run up against Jesus in a court of law because he has literally backed them into the corner because he goes, you know, John the Baptist, that was your witness. He's the one that you sent your delegation out to hear. He's the one you were talking to about Messiah. I'd like to call John the Baptist to the stand. Then he comes back after that and he says, oh, by the way, I'd also like to call to the stand God the Father. You you know, that moment in which I was baptized and there was a voice that came from heaven basically saying that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He goes, let's talk for a moment about the scriptures. That same thing you've been studying night and day over and over again. All of those verses are testifying about me. So if you reject me, you're going to have to turn your back on everything you respect and love. Listen. Listen. Now look at what he says in verse 40. I could just like barely give you a little of this. This is too much for me. Okay, here it is, verse 40. Here's what he says to them. And you are unwilling to come to me. You know what he's saying? This is not about belief. It's not about evidence. It's not about the fact that you need to know more. No, that's not the issue at all. This is about unwillingness to now come to me as your Savior. Man. next week, he starts there and he unpacks the issues of the heart that stand in the way of people saying, I'm willing to follow him as Lord and Savior. You don't want to miss next week. This is the setup for next week. Next week, Jesus comes and lowers the boom. It's good stuff. <laughs> All right? Hey, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for the word. We recognize, God, that apart from your spirit beginning to bring conviction, to illumine a deceived mind, apart from your word speaking truth into our lives, there's not a way that we just stumble into the truth, God, but rather we are led into it. So I pray, Father, that we don't run from the hard things that we submit as your spirit begins to guide and teach and train. I pray, Lord, that those who are in the room right now, and maybe their faith has been shaken in some different ways, God, I pray that you would breathe new life into them today. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to be able to see that theirs is not a faith of wishes and want-tos, of hunches and good feelings. Theirs is a faith of substance, of evidence, a faith that is based on logic and reason, a faith in which they don't have to be afraid of. It's a faith in which they can grow in more and more. God, strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.